0: Chapter 3 The Stuck Community The existing community context is one that markets fear, assigns fault, and worships self-interest. This context supports the belief that the future will be improved with new laws, more oversight, and strong leadership. Possibility thinking and associational life are marginalized relegated to human interest and side stories in the media. The corporate model is the modern ideal, and the economy is the center story. The story in the stuck community defines the role of the media as framer of the debate. In community building, we need to realize that what the media reports is a reflection, not the cause of the conversation that citizens currently hold. To create a new story, we first need to come to terms with the current one. This begins by naming it. The story of the stuck community can be heard both in the dominant public debate and also in what we talk about to each other each day. It is important to understand that there is a hidden agenda in every story. This agenda is a point to be made, a political belief about what is important that stays constant regardless of the events of the day marketing fear and fault. When I was deputy press secretary at the White House, our credibility was so bad, we couldn't believe our own leaks. Bill Moyers. The overriding characteristic of the stuck community is the decision to broadcast all the reasons we have to be afraid. This is a kind of advertising that exploits the fear we have of violence, of the urban core, of terrorism, of African Americans and other ethnic groups, of immigrants, of those who are poor or undereducated, of other religions, and of other countries. It seems as though the lead story of every local evening newscast is about crime and human suffering. And if our city had none that day, then we hear how somewhere else in the world, someone was murdered, bombed, killed in an accident, or abducted from what was once thought to be a safe place. What we are hearing is the marketing of fear. In the telling, we are willing to sacrifice the wholeness and dignity of a person for the sake of capturing the emotion or drama of the moment. The marketing of fear thrusts a microphone in the face of someone who has just suffered an irreplaceable loss and asks, How do you feel? It is the commercialization of suffering for the sake of profit, not that complicated. The marketing of fear is not just for profit, it also holds a political agenda. Fear justifies the retributive agenda, fundamentalist in the extreme, that has been on the rise for some time. The retributive agenda believes that a just and civil society is one that gives priority to restraints, consequences, and control, and underlines the importance of rules. It gets packaged as spiritual values, family values, the American way, love it or leave it, all under the umbrella of law and order. It helps build the incarceration industry and the protection industry. It creates a platform that enables those in power to expand their belief system, and it discounts the rehabilitation industry. Fear forms the basis of our recent foreign policy and drives much of our legislation. Fear also fuels the allure of suburban life and is a subtle but clear argument against diversity and inclusion. In addition to marketing fear, the stuck community markets fault. When there is a human tragedy, most of the energy goes into finding who was to blame. There is a retributive search for responsibility and a corresponding defense from the players claiming their innocence. This blame marketing rests on the belief that if we can assign blame and find cause, it is useful to society and somehow reassures us that the tragedy won't happen again. To me, this is irrational thinking. What is missing here is a recognition of the complexity of human affairs, an acknowledgement of the paradoxical and accidental nature of life. There is no insurance policy against the human condition. Out of the decision to dwell on fear and fault, the community is stuck in a context that holds the following. We are a community of problems to be solved. Those who can best articulate the problems and who can best articulate the solutions dominate the conversation. The future is defined by the interplay of self-interests. Dependent on the accountability of leaders and controlled by a small number of wealthy and powerful people Commonly lumped into the category we call they. Community action is aimed at eliminating the sources of our fear. We aim at a set of needs and deficiencies. In order to eliminate our fear and respond to the neediness of our people, we try harder at what we have been doing all along. We lock down neighborhoods, build more prisons, and reduce tolerance to zero. We call for better measurements, more expertise more funding, better leadership, stronger consequences, and more protection. We are committed to trying harder at what is not working. Ramping up laws and oversight. When something goes wrong, we carry the illusion that after we find the guilty party, some kind of legislation or change in policy will prevent the crime or accident from happening again we are stuck in the belief that we can legislate the future and mandate morality. In Cincinnati, we passed an ordinance that street people had to be licensed to ask passers-by for money. The idea was that somehow I now would be comfortable going downtown knowing that the person asking for money had been certified and approved by the city council. Now even panhandling was professionalized. The ordinance did not bring more people into town at night. A corollary to passing more laws is the push for more oversight. We think that more watching improves performance. All the evidence is to the contrary, for most high-performing communities and organizations are heavily self-regulating. My favorite quote on this is, research causes cancer in rats. It is reasonable to understand that the act of oversight may in fact increase the very thing that is being watched with the intent of reducing it. The political agenda of the stuck community says that citizens and employees are incapable of monitoring themselves and controlling each other, and that more careful oversight, institutionally mandated and installed, will build community and provide for the common good. It is, in fact, an argument against building community. It ends up leaving us more dependent on security specialists and professionalized control. It provides the business case for monarchy, someone to watch over me. Romanticizing Leadership Carol Schirsch was taking care of the logistics of a conference on transformation. She opened the event by announcing, The restrooms are down the hall on the left. Lunch will be at 1 o'clock p.m., dinner is at 8 o'clock p.m., and the conference will be over tomorrow afternoon. Let me know if I can help you with anything, and also let me know what time your mother is picking you up. We love our habit of dependency and accept the culture of retribution because it reinforces the case for strong leaders. Strong being the code word for autocratic, a message our culture is increasingly willing to accede to We are fascinated with our leaders. We speak endlessly, both in the public conversation and private, about the rise and fall of leaders. The agenda this sustains is that leaders are cause and all others are effect. That all that counts is what leaders do. That leaders are the leverage point for building a better community. That they are foreground while citizens, followers, players, and anyone else not in a leadership position are background. This is a deeply patriarchal agenda, and it is this love of leaders that limits our capacity to create an alternative future. It proposes that the only real accountability in the world is at the top. They are the only ones worth talking about. The effect of buying into this view of leadership is that it lets citizens off the hook and breeds citizen dependency and entitlement. It undermines the development of a culture where each is accountable for their community. The attention on the leader makes good copy. It gives us someone to blame and thereby declares our innocence. In its own way, it reinforces individualism, puts us in the stance of waiting for the cream to rise, wishing for a great individual to bring light where there is darkness. It is possible to admire and be inspired by great leaders, even bosses, but we need to resist the projection that they can produce a change in the conditions that concern us. Each of us is accountable for our small piece of creating better conditions. When we project that on a leader, power gets abused and disappointment is inevitable. What is missing or dismissed here are the community-building insights about how groups work, the power of relatedness, what occurs when ordinary people get together. We write communal possibility off as just another meeting, the blind leading the blind. Citizens coming together to pool ignorance or to speak truth to power, which is just a complaint session and evening clothes. As an aside, some reasons for discounting the power of citizens are well-founded, for most of the time, when citizens come together, it makes no difference. That's because they operate under the retributive principles that I am trying to describe in this section. They want to define the problem, find fault, elaborate fear, demand control-oriented action, and point to leaders. Many citizens get engaged in community only when they are angry. If we keep engaging citizens in this traditional way, then no amount of involvement will make a difference. The way we currently gather has no transformational power. This is what needs to change. For if we do not change the way citizens come together, if we do not shift the context under which we gather, and do not change the methodology of our gatherings, then we will have to keep waiting for great leaders, and we will never step up to the power and accountability that is within our grasp. Marginalizing Possibility Given the dominant contexts that value scarcity, leadership, individualism, fear, and fault, anything positive or hopeful becomes an anomaly, an exception, an accident. To choose possibility means that we have to confront cynicism. Journalism, human services, corrections, and public safety are professions which claim that their cynicism comes from constant contact and familiarity with the dark side of society. This ignores the reality that what you see comes from what you choose to look at. Decide that all the news fit to print is about problems, and that is what you get. In the retributive culture, cynicism is the norm and becomes the lead story. Cynicism justifies retribution. Retribution is fueled by cynicism. In this context, Possibility and vision become buried in the middle section of the news, or become an upbeat pat on the back as the anchor goes off the air. Possibility and faith are seen as threatening because they are an indictment of cynicism. So when citizens do find a way to use their gifts, or commit to something thought impossible, or bring faith and gratitude into the world, it is not by accident that the story is reduced to a human interest piece." the kiss of death when it comes to changing our context. Many reporters do not even consider these stories journalism. When labeled human interest, possibility doesn't qualify as news. It is a feel-good diversion, something to calm our nerves. Possibility and the faith that supports it may be strong declarations for the individual, but for the collective, they are neutered and treated as merely charming. Mainstream journalism treats us as passive spectators and is a profession which thinks that its role is to speak truth to power. It worships the sensational and the tragic. What bleeds is what leads. This is costing the profession its audience, especially since every individual is now a publisher. We need to support the efforts of a journalism committed to what is working. Think of the Solutions Journalism Network, the Citizen Journalism Movement, New Scoop in Calgary, Colby Times, Small Signs of a Shift in Thinking. Possibility also gets undermined by being confused with optimism. Even when leaders speak to the possibility of our community, in the stuck community, we consider it a motivational speech, a sales pitch, a bootstrap keynote to make us feel better and lift our spirits from what we call reality. But possibility is not a prediction or a goal. It is a choice to bring a certain quality into our lives. Optimism, which is a prediction about the future, has no power. Pessimism is equally irrelevant. The ways in which possibility is marginalized underline the importance of context. All that does not confirm the prevailing mindset is made marginal and cute. This is why if you want to create an alternative future, you have to shift the context, for all of that disconfirms the current context will be discarded. We need to shift what is considered reality. For example, what if we see the media as a reflection of who we are, and choose to listen primarily to media that promote learning and possibility, document miracles, and report on a different agenda, and call it the new reality? Les Ihara a longtime state senator in Hawaii, says that what is needed is a shift in the ground of being that reports the news. Devaluing associational life John McKnight has studied communities for 30 years and found that community is built most powerfully by what he calls associational life. Referring to the myriad ways citizens come together to do good work and serve the public interest, Whether in clubs, associations, informal gatherings, special events, or just on the street or at breakfast, neighborly contact constitutes an uncounted and unnoticed glue and connection that makes good communities work. The stuck community essentially discounts associational life and instead values, and even glorifies, the system life, especially the private sector and corporate mindset. This context is so pervasive that we have become anesthetized to it. Although there is a growing awareness of the cost of this mindset, see David Corkin's work listed at the end of the book, we still act as if what is good for business is good for the country. Here are some ways in which we discount associational life, the place where the social fabric is built. The only true measure of community is its economic prosperity, according to traditional measures. We seek the American dream, streets paved with gold. The only good news that makes the news is when Toyota decides to build a plant in our town. Communities will justify spending infinite amounts of money to keep sports teams because they are theoretically good for the economy. Job creation is the final argument for most of our mistakes, especially when we destroy the neighborhood economy. We measure the neighborhood and the person by their average annual income. We name social services and institutions that serve the public good, not-for-profits. Not-for-profit means that service and generosity are defined by what they are not. What kind of identity and esteem does this establish for the choice for service and care for community? Can you imagine introducing yourself as the name you are not? Hello. My name is not Alice. Well, I would like you to meet my friend, not Roger. There is no identity in that. Nothing memorable or recognizable next time we meet. There is a movement to call it the public benefit sector. Not such a bad thing. Associations are under constant pressure to be more corporate, to merge, become more efficient, submit to external oversight, measure harder, and submit to greater accountability. These are core values in the private sector. A natural outgrowth of this is the way many foundations, which exist for the sake of community service, treat corporations as their clients. In the philanthropic world, you also hear people talk about their return on social investment. We use the language of commerce when talking about the field of generosity. The public benefit sector makes front-page news only when there is scandal— The head of a large agency who spends funds on limousines and high living is on the front page for days. When the same agency softens the landing for people in a tragedy or turns people's lives around, the story is at best a footnote. We marginalize compassion in the public conversation. Here's an example. As an effort to build the image and well-being of the city, Go Cincinnati is about streetcars, housing development, And attracting new businesses. It sells hard the strengths of the city, including the arts, entertainment, and sports attractions. All good things to sell and essential to a city that works. What is missing in this conversation and sales pitch is the compassion of a city. Having a large number of social services in a neighborhood is seen as a weakness, not a selling point. The view is that if people need help, if they are vulnerable or in crisis, it is a communal liability. The generosity that serves these people goes unmentioned as an asset. Reinforcing self-interest and isolation. These dimensions of the way we talk about our community and the stories we repeatedly tell about our community work together to create an insular mentality. Under the siege of fear, fault, and the rest, people and institutions build a wall around themselves and are primarily concerned with their own interests and survival. This gives us a community in which each sector—business, education, government, social service, healthcare is so focused on its own affairs that those who choose to commit to the well-being of the whole have a difficult time gaining a foothold. And what exists for our institutions is reinforced by citizens. Citizens mostly get engaged when something threatens their backyard. They show up in public settings when they are angry. They become activated only by local, next-door interests. To summarize, the context of retribution and the story that grows out of it cause our attempts to build community to be what actually keeps it unchanged. Our retributive approach to the symptoms of poverty, violence, homelessness, And cynicism does not create these symptoms, but does interfere with their changing. Retribution by its nature serves to fragment community and reduce social capital. The side effect is that each citizen's accountability for the well-being of community is reduced. When the context is retributive, reduced accountability and diminished social capital are the direct outgrowths of our very efforts to improve community. And this mostly occurs as an unintended consequence, for no one holds a fragmented community as a goal. The media. The problem, of course, was that Baba saw the world in black and white, and he got to decide what was black and white. Khaled Hosseini, the kite runner. As a key messenger of context in the stuck community, the media takes its cue from citizens and makes its living from the call for retribution. The public conversation most visible to us is the interaction between what we, citizens, want to hear and the narrative put forth by the media. But it is too easy to blame the media for valuing entertainment over news and for selling fear and problems over generosity and possibility it is more useful to see that the media is a reflection of who we, as citizens, have become. The news is most usefully understood as the daily decisions about what is newsworthy. This is a power that goes way beyond simply informing us. The agenda in each story defines what is important, and in doing this, it promotes an identity for a community. This means that the real importance of the media is not in the typical debate over the quality balance or even accuracy of what is reported these vary with the channel the network the newspaper the website they vary depending on having the resources to get the whole story the market segment the source is aiming at and its editorial agenda what is most important and the power that is most defining is the power of the media to decide what is worth talking about As British newspaper pioneer Lord Northcliffe once said, news is what somebody somewhere wants to suppress. All the rest is advertising. The media's power is the power to name the public debate, or in other words, the power to name reality. This is true for the mainstream as well as online media. Plus, there are new players in the media landscape, the Internet, the social networks, the blogosphere, have invaded the world we once called news. While the traditional media still define what the story is about, the texture and color come from every direction, and the most powerful players on social media sites, such as Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, take retribution, blame, and accusation to the extreme. Technology is often held up as the answer to the future, but at this point, it mostly just amplifies the dominant story. The point is this, citizens have the capacity to change the community story, to reclaim the power, to name what is worth talking about, to bring a new context into being. Those of us who create the current dominant context for the community conversation drive the conditions that nurture a retributive context and a retributive community. If we do not choose to change this context and the strategies that follow from it, We will produce no new outcomes for our institutions, neighborhoods, and towns. Chapter 4 The Restorative Community Restoration comes from the choice to value possibility and relatedness over problems, needs, self-interest, and the rest of the stuck community's agenda. It hinges on the accountability chosen by citizens and their willingness to connect with each other around promises they make to each other. Restoration is created by the kinds of conversations we initiate with each other. These conversations are the leverage point for an alternative future. The core question that underlies each conversation is, what can we create together? Shifting the context from retribution to restoration will occur through the use of language that moves in the following directions. From problems to possibility, from fear and fault to gifts, generosity and abundance, from law and oversight to social capital and chosen accountability, from the dominance of corporation and systems to the centrality of associational life, and from leaders to citizens. In contrast to the isolating effects of retribution, a restorative experience, relationship, or community produces new energy rather than holding us in place. Restoration is associated with the quality of aliveness and wholeness that Christopher Alexander talks about. This quality is not only in the artifacts, buildings, and spaces that he refers to, but also in the gatherings and conversations we choose to create. The energy crisis we face is not so much about fossil fuels as it is about the calcified experience that is too often created by the way we hold conversations, both publicly and when we come together in more private settings. Restorative community is activated by language of connection and relatedness and belonging, spoken without embarrassment. It recognizes that taking responsibility for one's own part in creating the present situation is the critical act of courage and engagement, which is the axis around which the future rotates. The essence of restorative community building is not economic prosperity or the political discourse or the capacity of leadership. It is citizens' willingness to own up to their contribution or agency in the current conditions, to be humble to choose accountability, and to have faith in their own capacity to make authentic promises to create the alternative future. This all matters because to achieve what we seek hinges on the question of accountability. Asking who will be accountable is about asking who will stand up to be counted. In whose hands does transformation rest? It is not by chance that in the United States we have more people in jails and prisons Than any other country in the world, we are dominated by the punitive mindset of consequences, of setting examples, of assigning blame when suffering occurs. These are the practices of an imperial culture, which is nourished by fear. Retributive cultures claim to increase accountability, but they actually can't deliver it. Accountability is always a choice. What someone does when no one else is looking, handcuffs do not get the job done. This means that the essential aspect of the restoration of community is a context in which each citizen chooses to be accountable rather than entitled. This inverts the common use of the word accountability. It is most often used as a burden, a basis for future liability. Not necessarily so. Accountability is the willingness to care for the whole, And it flows out of the kind of conversations we have about the new story from which we want to take our identity. It means we have conversations about what we can do to create the future. Entitlement is a conversation about what others can or need to do to create the future for us. Restoration begins when we think of community as a possibility, a declaration of the future that we choose to live into. This idea of a communal possibility is distinct from what we commonly call an individual possibility. Community is something more than a collection of individual longings, desires, or possibilities. The communal possibility has its own landscape and its own dynamics, requirements, and points of leverage. In the individualistic world we live in, we can congregate a large collection of self-actualized people and still not hold the idea or experience of community. The communal possibility rotates on the question, what can we create together? This emerges from the social space we create when we are together. It is shaped by the nature of the culture within which we operate, but is not controlled by it. This question of what we can create together is at the intersection of possibility and accountability. Possibility without accountability results in wishful thinking. Accountability without possibility creates more of what we have now, which ultimately turns to despair. For even if we know we are creating the world we exist in, we cannot imagine its being any different from the past that got us here. Example, the Claremont Counseling Center. Trisha Burke was the director of the Claremont Counseling Center, She completely understood the destructive power of labeling and categorizing human beings. Rare for one in a leadership position in a labeling industry. One of her programs was for women in abusive relationships who are survivors of domestic violence. She called this program Women of Worth. What's in a name? Everything. The counseling center also ran a mental health facility. The center exemplified most of the elements of freedom, choice, transforming language, and small group belonging discussed in this book. In the mental health program were clients labeled as paranoid schizophrenic, bipolar, and delusional, and people who had a history of state hospital stays. For the center to bill Medicaid for their services, the services must be medically necessary. This means that the center was required to certify each client's illness and medicalize all of the center services in order to be reimbursed. In the eyes of Trisha and her staff, many of the most effective healing efforts come from actions that are not really medical interventions. What are often most healing are the ways that people and programs discover how to have fun in what they do and feel embraced and surrounded by the support of others like themselves. The sense of belonging that accrues is as healing as traditional treatment. This sort of thing is not a legitimate program activity in the eyes of Medicaid. To keep Medicaid funding, the center was required to name and place a disease on the head of each person. Despite this, Trisha and her staff decided to change the conversation at Clermont in dramatic ways. They gave up the Medicaid funding for their partial hospital day treatment program and put the clients in charge of the day program staff were reassigned to other programs. In doing this, Trisha changed the message to clients from one focusing on their liabilities to one focusing on their possibilities. The organizing questions to members, no longer patients, were, what do you like to do? And how do you want to fill your day? The traditional hospital experiences were maintained, but these questions were the organizing principles that guided the healing process. The strategy, then, was to treat members as if they had the capacity to design and structure a good portion of their own time. Phoenix Place, the new name the members chose for this effort, became a member-controlled, self-governing program. There was only one paid staff member, Kim Hensley, the director of the program, and many of the governance and program decisions were placed in the hands of members. In the first year. The members came up with ingenious answers to the question, what can we create together? For example, they formed and chose an executive committee for themselves. They organized a wellness activity. They volunteered their services to an animal shelter. They wanted to travel, so they decided to open a snack shop to earn money. When Phoenix Place received a grant to offer medication education for other mentally ill folk in five counties, the members provided it themselves. When Ohio State legislators were invited to visit the facility, the members wanted time with them to make the point that people who have mental illness are not their illness. They are much more than their illness. They were no longer afraid to talk about their lives. They came out of the closet. The group started training police on the nature of mental illness, what it is like to hear voices, for example. They taught the police how to approach people having an incident and what language to use. They started a journaling process, which they called Wild Spirits, to give voice to what it feels like to be in the dark hole of despair and find your way out, and to express their healing by writing about hope, gratitude, and love. At the end of the first year of Phoenix Place, its members felt pride in what they had created. They had jobs to do and had regained some of the roles they had lost in the larger society. Most of all, they had begun once again to have hopes and dreams about their future. Eventually, they outgrew the small house for Phoenix Place, so they set about raising money for a bigger one by working the concession stands at the Reds and Bengals games, And years later, their dream came true. When it did, they wrote a grant proposal to make a video to tell their story. Of course, the story of Phoenix Place and others like it is not all about success and victory. Along the way, Tricia says, it took patience and encouragement to help Phoenix members shift their thinking to believing that they could run their own program. In the beginning, they were angry and felt they were being abandoned. They even picketed at the center. Helping them break free of their dependency was difficult. Here is a part I especially like. As part of a program on positive psychology, one exercise was for individuals to complete a questionnaire about their strengths. The members noted that this was the first time in their lives they had ever taken a test and gotten good news from the results. The transition from patient to citizen is always difficult for all of us, not just labeled people. And the trajectory is not always smooth. For example, the departure of the original director of Phoenix Place caused anxiety and worry. The member-led executive community began to act superior, controlling, and judgmental. And some of the spirit of community waned. In other words, the community started to function like most traditional executive committees. Eventually, this center and its radical values were absorbed into a more traditional institution of service, which underscores the power of the dominant context. Nothing in Phoenix Place's ending detracts from what it created or what it meant to the people it touched. What is important for each of us is what conclusions we draw from the example, which is the point of context. Whatever we conclude is ours to manufacture. Lessons from Restorative Justice Phoenix Place gives us a powerful model of what a restorative community can look like. When I say restorative, I am not talking about returning to a prior time, fixing up an old building, or seeking to recapture a culture that we think once existed. Restoration is about healing our woundedness. In community terms, healing our fragmentation, and incivility—it is only out of this healing that something new can emerge. I have been attracted for some time by the way restorative is used in the criminal justice system, which I learned from Barry Stewart, Lee Rush, and others who have created the restorative justice movement. They have given a powerful structure to restoration, and they have done it in a most unlikely place. The intent of restoration in the criminal justice system is to provide a more reconciled path for both the offender and the victim of a crime. This becomes an option for the victim to choose and for the offender to agree to. It also gives a voice to the community, for the community is also wounded by a crime. There are several steps to restoration. They all occur in a meeting. The offender admits to the crime. The offender and the victim and their families talk of the cost. And damage the crime has caused to all their lives, the offender apologizes for the offense, the offender promises not to do it again, and the offender agrees to some form of restitution for the damage caused. Finally, the victim and their family decide whether to forgive the offender and accept the restitution. If they decide to forgive, then the representatives of the community have a voice in deciding whether to allow the offender to go free and rejoin the community. If the victim and family decide not to forgive, then the offender goes through the regular criminal justice process. On a global scale, restorative justice is similar to the practices of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. These steps contain many of the elements of community building. It is not so much the methodology that concerns us here, but rather the context and spirit that these movements offer us. They show that an alternative to retribution is possible and has worked in the world. This spirit of restoration promises a different future for our communities. Community as Conversation The idea of community restoration becomes concrete when we grasp the importance of language. When we do, we can see how our language, or conversation, is the action step that makes creating an alternative future possible. Stated simply, we can begin to think of our communities as nothing more or less than a conversation. If we can accept the idea that all real change is a shift in narrative— a new story as opposed to the received dominant story, then the function of citizenship or leadership is to invite a new narrative into existence. Narrative begins with a ride on the wave of conversation. For greatest effect, we need a new conversation with people we are not used to talking to. Every community has its buildings, leaders, schools, and landscape, but for the moment, Let us say that these are not what make a community unique or define its identity. Instead, we decide to declare that the aspect of a community that gives it a new possibility is simply the conversation that citizens choose to have with themselves. Jane Jacobs, world expert on neighborhoods, understands this. When she was asked why she thought Portland, Oregon, has been so successful in creating a habitable community, she said that the only thing unique about Portland is that Portlanders love Portland. In our terms here, it was the conversation Portlanders had with each other about their town that made the difference. Thus, if we speak of change or transformation in our city or town, in my case, Cincinnati, we are referring to the conversation that is occurring in that town. We highlight the conversation community members have with themselves, not because it is the whole picture, but because it is the part of the picture that is most amenable to change. This means that the alternative future we speak of takes form when we realize that the only powerful place from which to take our identity may be the story we hold about ourselves and our collective way of being together, We begin the process of restoration when we understand that our well-being is defined simply by the nature and structure and power of our conversation. The future of a community then depends on a choice between a retributive conversation, a problem to be solved, and a restorative conversation, a possibility to be lived into. Restoration is a possibility brought into being by choosing that kind of conversation, And with that conversation, restoration becomes real and tangible. For once we have declared a possibility, and done so with a sense of belonging and in the presence of others, that possibility has been brought into the room and thus into the institution, into the community. The key phrase here is, in the presence of others. When declared publicly, heard, and witnessed by others with whom we have a common interest, At a moment when something is at stake, a possibility is a critical element of communal transformation. This public conversation creates a larger relatedness and transcends a simply individual transformation. In the faith world, this is similar to what has been called bearing witness. We are bringing that into secular practice. Conversations of possibility gone public are not all that restores, but without them, personal and private conversations of possibility, have no political currency and therefore no communal power. The shift. To summarize the storyline to this point, our conversations and gatherings have the power to shift the context from retributive community to restorative community. This occurs through questions and dialogue that move us in the following directions from conversations about problems to ones of possibility, from conversations about fear and fault to ones of gifts, generosity, and abundance, from a bet on law and oversight to a preference for building the social fabric and chosen accountability, from seeing the corporation and systems as central to change to seeing associational life as central, from a focus on leaders to a focus on citizens, what these have in common is the movement from centricism and individualism to collectivism and interdependent communalism. This shift has important consequences for our communities. It offers to return politics to public service and restore our trust in leadership. It moves us from having faith in professionals and those in positions of authority to having faith in our neighbors. It takes us into a context of hospitality, wherein we welcome strangers rather than believing we need to protect ourselves from them. It changes our mindset from valuing what is efficient to valuing belonging. It helps us leave behind our penchant for seeing our disconnectedness as an inevitable consequence of modern life and moves us toward accountability and citizenship. Chapter 5, Taking Back Our Projections Citizens become powerful when they choose the context within which they operate. This choosing is difficult because we are seeking an alternative to the received wisdom of the culture. Choosing our own language of context, rather than aligning with the language of the dominant culture, puts the choice into our own hands. It acknowledges that our mindset— even our world view, is subjective and therefore amenable to change. There is a cost to this, namely, we are subject to doubt and at times loneliness. It is the path of a pioneer. To choose a context conducive to citizenship, we first need to understand the idea of communal projection. Projection is the act of attributing qualities to others that we deny within ourselves. It is expressed in the way we label others, and then build diagnostic categories and whole professions around labeling. The shift away from projection and labeling provides the basis for defining what we mean by authentic citizenship, which is to hold ourselves accountable for the well being of the larger community and to choose to own and exercise collective power rather than defer or delegate it to others. Here is a way of thinking about the shift in context from retribution to restoration. We begin with going deeper into what it means to choose to be accountable, not just for ourselves, but for the world. The reason the retributive context cannot improve the conditions it tries to heal is that it talks a lot about accountability, but does not embody it. The context of retribution itself is actually an ongoing argument against accountability. This happens each time I want to see a change in those people. Those people can be supervisors, top management, the mayor, immigrants, people living in poverty. The list is endless. When I develop prescriptions for their transformation, I am making them the cause of our troubles. I am expressing the belief that if those people were different, our organization, our community would be better. This is the attraction of the marketing of fear and fault and our love of leadership. It is a way of seeking control through the belief that something or someone else is the problem and that the someone else needs to do something different before anything can profoundly get better. And the clincher is that, as holders of the dominant narrative, we believe we know what that something different is. This is the colonial nature of most of our public conversations. On a large scale, it is what drives Great Britain out of the European Union. It is what wants to build a wall to keep the stranger out. It is why my mother was angry with her brother for 40 years. To inquire more deeply into this shift in context, we need to focus on the distinction between culture and context. The common thinking holds that transformation requires a culture change. I am talking here about context. Not culture. The reason I use the word context rather than culture is to construct our stance as a matter of choice. Culture is a set of shared values that emerges from the history of experience and the story that is produced out of that. It is the past that gives us our identity and corrals our behavior in order to preserve that identity. Context is the way we see the world. See the world not remember the world. We conventionally think that our view of the world is based on history, events, and evidence, and this pattern is treated as fact and is decisive. It is called fact but is only a collective memory, which in the glare of the midday sun I would irreverently call fiction. If this thing we call context were fact, then it would not be amenable to transformation. If context were inevitable and purely based on fact, then we would be condemned to live in fear. We are constantly being sold the fear curriculum so that in time, we begin to think the context of fear is for good cause and data-based. In reality, fear rises and falls for more reasons than events would dictate. If we can entertain the thought that fear is the curriculum of the patriarchal element of our culture, then we can understand that the dominant fear conversation is as much a result of marketing and product promotion as it is a response to facts. In the domain of public safety, for instance, there is little relationship between the crime rate and people's attitude about danger. There is evidence that many kinds of crime went down in many major cities in the late 1990s and have stayed down to this present moment. But while crime went down, the public's fear of crime went up. Why? Because while crime was going down, the reporting of crime went up. So the determinant of our fear is partly the retributive agenda, which leads to reporting about how dangerous the world is, and more important, our choice to buy the story. Here is the point. In the retributive context, we act as though fear— Fault, dependency on leaders, cynicism, and indifference to associational life are evidence-based. If we are committed to a future distinct from the past, then we treat them as a matter of choice, and we call this way of thinking context, not culture. Projection and Labeling You pushed my buttons. I know, but I didn't install them. Author Unknown If the fear-retribution cycle is a matter of choice and not an inevitable result of culture, then we have to face the fact that the choice to inhale it must mean it offers us payoffs. One payoff for believing that problems and the suffering in our cities are the inevitable products of modern life and culture is that it lets us off the hook. The payoff begins the moment we believe that problems reside in others— and that these others are the ones who need to change. We displace or assign to others certain qualities that in fact have more to do with us than with them. This is called projection, an idea most of us are quite familiar with. I discuss it here because if we do not take back our projection, a new context and conversation are simply not possible. The essence of our projection is that it places accountability for an alternative future on others. This is the payoff of stereotyping, prejudice, and a bunch of isms that we are all familiar with. This is what produces the other. The reward is that it takes the pressure off of us. It is a welcome escape from our freedom. We project onto leaders the qualities or disappointments that we find too much to carry ourselves. We project onto the stranger, the wounded, the enemy those aspects of ourselves that are too much to own. Projection denies the fact that my view of the other is my creation, and this is especially true with how we view our communities and the people in them. Most simply, how I view the other is an extension or template of how I view myself. This insight is the essence of being accountable. To be accountable is to act as an owner and creator of what exists in the world, including the light and dark corners of my own existence. It is the willingness to focus on what we can do in the face of whatever the world presents to us. Accountability does not project or deny. Accountability is the willingness to see the whole picture that resides within, even what is not so pretty. We are generally familiar with these ideas from the psychology of projection for individuals, and the point here is that projection also works more broadly at the level of profession, institution, and community. Take poverty, for example. When we see low-income people, we focus on their needs and deficiencies, and that is all we see. We think their poverty is central to who they are, and that is all they are. We believe that the poor have created that condition for themselves. We view them with charity or pity and wring our hands at their plight. At this moment, we are projecting our own vulnerability onto the poor. It is a defense against not only our own vulnerability, but also our complicity in creating poverty. If we took back this projection, we would stop denying that each of us plays a role in creating poverty, by our way of living, by our indifference, by our labeling them poor as if that is who they are, by our choice not to have them as neighbors and get to know them. Part of the tax reduction debate is the belief that we are wasting money on those people. It is not that the people we project onto do not have some of the qualities we see. It is that the meaning we give to what we see, in this case, the label and categorization, is just projection. It's the same with the unemployed, with broken homes and broken-down neighborhoods, youth on the street, and all the other symptoms we live with. In our philanthropy, this mindset that the other is the problem means that we need to wait for them to change before the change we want in the world can come to pass. And until they change, we need to stay distant and contain them. This diverts us from the realization that we have the means, the tools, the thinking to create a world we want to inhabit and to do it for all. If we saw others as another aspect of ourselves, we would welcome them into our midst. We would let them know that they belong, that they are neighbors with all their complexity. To continue as a community, To focus on the needs and deficiencies of the most vulnerable is not an act of hospitality. It substitutes labeling for welcoming. It is isolating in that they become a special category of people, defined by what they cannot do. This isolates the most vulnerable. Despite our care for them, we do not welcome them into our midst. We service them. They become objects. This may be why it is easier to raise money for suffering in distant places or to celebrate the history of slavery's end than it is to raise money for our neighbors on the margin who are six blocks away. Their proximity stands in the way of our compassion. An example, in Cincinnati, we have spent $110 million to construct a magnificent freedom center to celebrate the end of slavery. Six blocks away, We have citizens living in very difficult conditions, and there is great reluctance to see the relationship between the two. We are willing to acclaim the victories of the past, yet caught in our projection onto the poor, we sustain a colonial attitude toward the suffering of people down the street. To be even more specific about projection, it shows up in communities through the conversations that focus on any of the needs, problems, and diagnostic categories through which we label others. For example, we limit our future when we frame conversations in the following ways. Young people on the corner or out of school become youth at risk. People who serve their time in jail become ex-offenders. People who live on the street become homeless or vagrants. Those with physical or mental challenges become handicapped and bipolar. Immigrants become illegals. And the list goes on based on the mood of the times. This labeling, along with the services that flow out of it, is the commercialization of needs that John McKnight has written about. It becomes the justification for the fear and fault conversation that in turn justifies the context of retribution, which in turn drives all the programs, expertise, and policy that we thought were going to make the difference. Taking back the projection When we stay isolated, there is no way to take back the communal projection. No amount of inner work or healing as individuals will be powerful. Projection sustains itself in the absence of relatedness, in a life or workplace where we have no sense of belonging. It cannot be taken back by acting alone. It does not disappear, no matter how much data is presented, no matter how much moral suasion or guilt we try to produce. Why can't we all just get along? Was a poignant plea, but it had no power to join us together. Communal transformation, taking back our collective projections, occurs when people connect with those who were previously strangers. And when we invite people into conversations that ask them to act as creators or owners of community, it occurs when we become related in a new way to those who are intending to help. This means we stop labeling others for their deficiencies and focus on their gifts. Example, Elements. One example of a place where youth are valued rather than labeled is a center in Cincinnati named Elements, A group of young people have created a hip-hop-oriented urban art center where 14- to 24-year-olds can spend three nights a week learning about writing, performing, disc jockeying, and producing hip-hop music, their music. They also learn about graffiti as an art form and breakdancing as a form of entertainment. Elements takes the very things that bother many adults, the music, the dancing, the graffiti, and treats them as gifts. This is not a recreation center. It is a learning space where youth have to attend programs in order to be in the building. Elements was conceived by young people, and young people run it, so that when kids from the street walk into the building, they see a reflection of themselves and know they are welcome. The staff of the place are not professionally trained youth workers, They are young people two steps further down the road who have made a commitment and sacrifice to care for those coming behind them. The goal of Elements is not specifically to provide careers in these entertainment fields. That would be making a promise that is unreal. The goal is to give young people an experience of what they can create, a sense of the value they have inside themselves. The ultimate goal is to offer them a new possibility for their lives. It also serves to overcome the isolation of urban youth. When they walk in the door for the first time, if you ask them how many adults in their life have their best interest at heart, their answer is one or two. If you ask them the same question after they have participated in Elements for six months, the answer is four to five. This experience makes the difference. When they are less isolated and have adults interested in their well-being, They have the will to retreat from the street culture and begin to construct a more productive life for themselves. Nothing guarantees that a young person will see a new possibility, but we can create the conditions where that choice is more likely. The transformation we seek occurs when these two conditions are created, when we produce deeper relatedness across boundaries, and when we create new conversations that focus on the gifts and capacities of others. These conditions allow us to focus on our connectedness rather than on our differences. We no longer need to take our identity from being right about them or from continuing to see them as individuals with needs or as people somehow less than us. It puts an end to our need to declare victory. The differences, instead of being problems to solve, become a source of vitality, a gift. In the language of community transformation, this is what it means to be accountable. At these moments, we become owners, with the free will capable of creating the world we want to inhabit. We become citizens. Chapter 6 The Inversion into Citizen Choosing to be accountable for the whole, creating a context of hospitality, and collective possibility, acting to bring the gifts of those on the margin into the center, these are some of the ways we begin to create a community of citizens. To reclaim our citizenship is to be accountable, and this comes from the inversion of what is cause and what is effect. When we are open to thinking along the lines that citizens create leaders, that children create parents, and that the audience creates the performance, we create the conditions for widespread accountability and the commitment that emerges from it. This inversion may not be the whole truth, but it is useful. If what holds the possibility of an alternative future for our community is our capacity to come fully into being a citizen's, then we have to talk about this word, citizen. Our definition here is that a citizen is one who is willing to be accountable for, and committed to the well-being of the whole. That whole can be a city block, a workplace, a community, a nation, the earth. A citizen is one who produces the future, someone who does not wait, beg, or dream for the future. The antithesis of being a citizen is being a consumer or a client, another idea that John McKnight has been so instructive about. Consumers give power away, They believe that their own needs can be best satisfied by the actions of others, whether those others are elected officials, top management, social service providers, or the shopping mall. Consumers also allow others to define their needs. If leaders and service providers are guilty of labeling or projecting onto others the needs to justify their own style of leadership or service they provide, Consumers collude with them by accepting others' definition of their needs. This provider, consumer transaction, is the breeding ground for entitlement, and it is unfriendly to our definition of citizen and the power inherent in that definition. The Meaning of Citizenship The conventional definition of citizenship is concerned with the act of voting and taking a vow to uphold the constitution and laws of a country. This is narrow and limiting. Too many organizations that are committed to sustaining democracy in the world and at home have this constrained view of citizenship. Citizenship is not about voting, or even about having a vote. To construe the essence of citizenship, primarily as the right to vote, reduces its power, as if voting ensures a democracy. It is certainly a feature of democracy, But as Fareed Zakaria points out in his book, The Future of Freedom, the right to vote does not guarantee a civil society, or in our terms, a restorative one. When we think of citizens as just voters, we reduce them to being consumers of elected officials and leaders. We see this most vividly at election time, when candidates become products, issues become the message, and the campaign is a marketing and distribution system for the selling of the candidate. Great campaign managers are great marketers and product managers. Voters become target markets, demographics, whose most important role is to meet in focus groups to respond to the nuances of message. This is the power of the consumer, which is no power at all. Through this lens, we can understand why so many people do not vote they do not believe that their action can impact the future. It is partly a self-chosen stance and partly an expression of the helplessness that grows out of a retributive world. This way of thinking is not an excuse not to vote, but it does say that our work is to build the capacity of citizens to be accountable and to become creators of community. We can see most clearly how we marginalize the real meaning of citizen when the word becomes politicized as part of the retributive debate. We argue over undocumented workers, immigration, and the rights of ex-felons and even their children. We politicize the issue of English as the official language and building a new wall on the Rio Grande that we will have to tear down someday. Citizenship as the willingness to build community gets displaced by isolationism in any form. It is not by accident that the loudest activists for finding and deporting undocumented workers are some of the leaders of the fear, oversight, safety, and security agenda. They are the key beneficiaries of the retributive society. If we want community, we have to be unwilling to allow citizenship to be co-opted in this way. The idea of what it means to be a citizen is too important and needs to be taken back to its more profound value. Citizenship is a state of being. It is a choice for activism and care. As a citizen, you are someone who is willing to do the following. Hold yourself accountable for the well-being of the larger collective of which you are a part. Don't answer the question, what's in it for me? When asked, simply say, I don't know. Choose to own and exercise power rather than defer or delegate it to others. Set aside your wish for great leadership. You may be it. How enticing is that? Enter into a collective possibility that gives hospitable and restorative community its own sense of being. Acknowledge that community grows out of citizens deciding to trust each other and cooperate to make this place better. Community is built not by specialized expertise or great leadership or improved services. It is built by great local people deciding to do something useful together. Attend to the gifts and capacities of all others and act to bring the gifts of those on the margin into the center. Find a way to do this each time you meet. To understand our gifts, we need to hear about them from each other as a practice for ending a gathering. Citizenship is the knowledge that I have contributed something of value. I have to hear to believe it. The Inversion of Cause The chicken is the egg's way of reproducing itself. Peter Kestenbaum To create communities where citizens reclaim their power, we need to shift our beliefs about who is in charge and where power resides. We need to invert our thinking about what is cause and what is effect. This shift is what has the capacity to confront our entitlement and dependency. Being powerful means that my experience, my discovery, even my pleasure are mine to create. This view has us see how audiences create performances, children create parents, students create teachers, and citizens create leaders. It is not that these shifts of cause are necessarily true, but they give us power, In every case, it puts choice into our own hands instead of having us wait for the transformation of others to give us the future we desire. If our intention is to create the possibility of an alternative future, then we need a future formed by our own hands, a handcrafted future. Inverting our thinking does not change the world, but it creates a condition where the shift in the world becomes possible. The shift starts with the inversion in our thinking. The step from thinking of ourselves as effect to thinking of ourselves as cause is the act of inversion that creates a culture of citizen accountability. This is the point on which accountability revolves. A note, the cause and effect, Cartesian clockwork view of the world, not only overstated the mechanical nature of the world, but also put cause at the wrong end of the equation. Double indemnity. This inversion challenges conventional wisdom that believes there is one right way. And by inversion, I mean a real inversion. 180 degrees, not 179 degrees. This is not the time for compromise or balance. Inverting or thinking about cause and effect gives support to really challenge the way things work. Again, I'm not saying that this way of thinking is 100% accurate 100% of the time but it can give added power to our way of being in community. The question to begin to reclaim our power as citizens is, if you believe this to be true, in what ways would that make a difference or change your actions? This means that the possibility of an alternative future centers on the question, have we chosen the present or has it been handed to us? The default culture would have us believe that the past creates the future, That a change in individuals causes a change in organizations and community, and that people in authority create people in a subordinate position. That we are determined by everything aside from free will. That culture, history, genetics, organizations, and society drive our actions and our way of being. All this is true, but the opposite is also true, that free will trumps genetics, culture, and parental upbringing. The utility of this inversion. The first inversion I ran into years ago was the thought that the inmates run the prison. I was skeptical until I worked with some corrections people who said that there is truth in this. Here are some implications of switching our thinking this way. Inversion. The audience creates the performance. Implications. Redesign the audience experience. Stop putting so much energy into the talent and message of those on stage. Limit PowerPoint presentations to four slides. Peter Brook immersed the stage in the center of the audience. John Cage held concerts where the rumbling, coughing sounds of the audience were the show. When we meet, make it possible for the audience to be engaged with one another. Every auditorium, almost every church, Almost every conference room and classroom would be redesigned. Chairs would be mobile. The audience members would be able to see one another and know that no matter what occurred on stage, they would not be alone and would have the ability to get what they came for. Inversion. The subordinate creates the boss. Implications. Learning, development, and goal setting are in the hands of the subordinate. We would stop doing surveys about how people feel about their bosses, the results of which no one knows what to do with anyway. The attention would turn from the boss to peers, which is the relationship that produces the work. Inversion, the child creates the parent. Implications, parents could sleep through the night. The conversation and industry of inculcating values and forcing consequences onto kids would quiet down. We would focus on the gifts, teachings, and blessings of the young instead of seeing them as problems to be managed. We would decide that the primary role of the parent is to discover who these strange little creatures we call children really are. We would listen to them instead of instructing and teaching them again and again. This would allow parents to relax their jaws and index fingers, a secondary health benefit. Inversion, citizens create their leaders. Implications, our dependency on leaders and our disappointment in them would go down. The media would have to change their thinking about lead stories. What citizens are doing to improve their community would no longer be human interest stories, but actual news. The cost of elections would be reduced by 90%, for the question of whom we elect would be less critical. Candidates for elected office could be poor. Above all, our leaders would be conveners, not role models and containers for our projections. More on this later. Inversion. A room and a building are created by the way they are occupied. Implications. We would be intentional about how we show up we would spend time designing how we sit in the room and not be mere consumers of the way the room was intended to be used or dependent on what the custodians or the last group using the room had in mind. We would redesign the physical space around us, rooms, hallways, reception areas, in a way that affirmed community so that it had a welcoming feeling and gave the sense that you had come to the right place. Most of all, How we sit together would be a serious subject of discussion. Inversion. The student creates the teacher and the learning. Implications. Education would be designed more for learning than for teaching. This already occurs in many places under the heading of individualized learning. Montessori education has forever operated along these lines. The social contract in the classroom would be renegotiated toward a partnership between teacher and student. Students would set goals for themselves and be responsible for the learning of other students. Simple ideas, powerful ideas, still rare in practice. This would also find a resting place for standardized testing and the colonial drive for a core curriculum. Inversion. Youth create adults. Implications. Adultism would be confronted. Adults would decide to get interested in the experience of youth instead of always instructing them. When there were meetings and conferences about youth, the voices of youth would be central to the conversation. Youth would become a possibility, not a problem. If we really believe this, we would move our belief in the next generation from lip service to pervasive practice. The question we would ask of youth is, what is it that we do not understand about you? This would be life-changing, if we had the nerve. Inversion, the listening creates the speaker. Implications, listening would be considered an action step. For most of us, listening is just waiting until we get a chance to speak. There might even be a period of silence between statements, and this silence would be experienced as part of the conversation, not dead space. The dark side of virtual communication is that there is little place for silence. If we were in the room together and you were quiet, we would wait. If we are in a Zoom call and you don't speak, we think it is a failure of technology. Listening would drive our speaking. We would also learn what speaking into the listening of the room means. Fundamentally, we would treat the listening as more important than the speaking. You get the point. The list could go on. In each case, when we invert our thinking, the focus of attention and effort gets redirected. The power in these shifts is that they confront us with our own freedom in unexpected ways. It is out of this freedom, which all of us have ways of escaping, that community and authentic accountability are born. I will be an accountable possibility for only that which I have had a hand in creating my life and community included. The politics of this is that the inversion of cause refocuses my attention from that person and authority, leader, performer, parent, warden, to that person who together with others also holds the real power. Not to overdo this perspective, for leader, performer, parent, and warden are critical partners in community. It's just that they are not the primary or so proprietors we have construed them to be. We will never eliminate our need for great leaders and people on the stage. We just cannot afford to put all our experience and future in their hands. There is no need to argue about this idea of inversion, only to play with its utility. A given inversion may not be true, but it is useful in the way it gives us power to evoke the kind of citizen we have defined as crucial to a true community. People who work in the civic arena have a certain cynicism about citizens. For example, they talk about how hard it is to get parents involved in their child's school, about how few people show up at council and board meetings unless they are angry, about how such a small number of people are really active in their community. There is truth to this view. It is not just cynicism. It is pretty accurate observation. What restores community is to believe that we play a role in constructing this condition. It is not in the nature of people to be apathetic, entitled, complainers. To state the issue simply, as long as we see leader as cause, we will produce passive, entitled citizens. We will put our attention, our training, and our resources wherever we think cause resides. When we see citizen as cause, then this will shift our attention and our wealth and the energy and creativity that go with them. This shift in thinking about cause and effect creates the belief that in each case, including our individual lives, choice and destiny replace accident and fate. No small thing. A word about accountability. One cost of the retributive conversation is that it breeds entitlement. Entitlement is essentially the conversation. What's in it for me? It expresses a consumer mentality, and the economist tells us that only what is scarce has value. Entitlement is the outcome of a patriarchal culture, which I have discussed too often in other books. But for this discussion, I'll simply say that if we create a context of fear, fault, and retribution, then we will focus on protecting ourselves, which plants the seed of entitlement. The cost of entitlement is that it is an escape from accountability and soft on commitment. What is interesting is that the existing public conversation claims to be tough on accountability, but the language of accountability as it is used in a retributive context is code for control. High control systems are unbearably soft on accountability. They keep screaming for tighter controls, new laws, and bigger systems, but in the scream— They expose their weakness. The weakness in the dominant view of accountability is that it thinks people can be held accountable, that we can force people to be accountable. Despite the fact that it sells easily, it is an illusion to believe that retribution, incentives, legislation, new standards, and tough consequences will cause accountability. This illusion is what creates entitlement, and worse, it drives us apart. It does not bring us together. It turns neighbor against neighbor. It denies that we are our brother's keeper. Every colonial and autocratic regime rises to power by turning citizens against each other. To control a culture, fear has to be sold through the central control of the media. By the crisis-based storyline of journalism, community is built by the stories of success community is undermined by finding who was at fault. This is the methodology of empire. To see our conventional thinking about accountability at work, notice the conversations that dominate our meetings and gatherings. We spend time talking about people not in the room. If not that, our gatherings are designed to sell, change, persuade, and influence others as if their change will help us reach our goals. These conversations do not produce power, they consume it. Chosen Accountability, Commitment, and the Use of Force Commitment and accountability are forever paired with each other and linked with creating community. None exists without the others. Accountability is the willingness to care for the well-being of the whole Commitment is the willingness to make a promise with no expectation of return. The economist would say this smacks of altruism, and so be it. What community requires is a promise devoid of barter and not conditional on another's action. Without that, we are constantly in the position of reacting to the choices of others, which means that our commitment is conditional. This is barter, not commitment. The choice of constantly reacting to the choices of others is increased cynicism and helplessness. The ultimate cost of cynicism and helplessness is that we resort to the use of force. In this way, the barter mentality that dominates our culture proliferates force. Not necessarily violence, but the belief that for anything to change, we must mandate or use coercion. The use of force is an end product of retribution, which rejects altruism and a promise made for its own sake. It rejects the idea that virtue is its own reward. Commitment is the antithesis of entitlement and barter. Unconditional commitment with no thought to, what's in it for me, is the emotional and relational essence of community. It is what some call integrity, fidelity, honoring your word. Commitment is to choose a path for its own sake. This is the essence of power. Mother Teresa got this. When asked why she worked with people one at a time, rather than caring more about having impact on a larger scale, she replied, I was called by faith, not by results. If you want to join the chorus arguing with Mother Teresa, be my guest. Chapter 7 The Transforming Community Conventional thinking about communal transformation believes that focusing on large systems, better leaders, clearer goals, and more controls is essential, and that emphasizing speed and scale is critical. The conventional belief is that individual transformation leads to communal transformation. Our explorations to this point lead instead to the understanding that transformation occurs when we focus on the structure of how we gather and the context in which the gatherings take place, when we work hard on getting the questions right, when we choose depth over speed and relatedness over scale. We also believe that problem solving can make things better but cannot change the nature of things. Community transformation calls for citizenship that shifts the context from a place of fear and fault, law and oversight, corporation and systems, and preoccupation with leadership to one of gifts, generosity and abundance, social fabric and chosen accountability, and associational life and the engagement of citizens. These shifts occur as citizens face each other in conversations of ownership and possibility To be more specific, leaders are held to three tasks. To shift the context within which people gather, name the debate through powerful questions, and listen rather than advocate, defend, or provide answers. The mindset that we can program and problem-solve our way into a vision does not take into account the complexity and relational nature of community. It undervalues the importance of context and the linguistic, conversational nature of community. If we want to see a change in our communities, we must let go of the conventional or received wisdom about how change occurs. This means we reject or at least seriously question the beliefs that communal change will occur in the following circumstances. We count on an aggregation of individual changes. We have seen this in attempts by large organizations trying to change their culture through large-scale trainings and change efforts. Communities initiate large-scale dialogue programs and book clubs where many are simultaneously reading the same book. No matter how well-intentioned, these efforts largely fall short of their goals. Why? Because individuals' lives are touched by the organizational culture and the community are unmoved. What's missing is that these efforts do not recognize that there is such a thing as a collective body. A community benefits from shifts in individual consciousness, but needs a communal connectedness as well, a communal structure of belonging that produces the foundation for the whole system to move. This is why it is so frustrating to create high performance and consciousness in individuals and in individual institutions and then find that they have so little impact on the social capital or fabric of the community. We think in terms of scale and speed. As David Bornstein has so clearly pointed out, something shifts on a large scale only after a long period of small steps, organized around small groups patient enough to learn and experiment and learn again. Speed and scale are the arguments against what individual and communal transformation requires. They are a hallmark of the corporate mindset. When we demand more speed and scale, we are making a coded argument against anything important being any different. We stay focused on large systems and top leaders to implement better problem-solving, clearer goals and vision, and better control of the process. Large system change is useful, but transforming action is always local, customized, unfolding, and emergent. The role of leaders is not to be better role models or to drive change. Their role is to create the structures and experiences that bring citizens together to identify and solve their own issues. Communal transformation does occur when we accept the following beliefs. We focus on the structure of how we gather and the context in which our gatherings take place. Collective change occurs when individuals and small diverse groups engage one another in the presence of many others doing the same. It comes from the knowledge that what is occurring in one space is similarly happening in other spaces, especially ones where I do not know what they are doing. This is the value of a network, or even a network of networks, which is today's version of a social movement. In paying attention to the structure and context of our gatherings, we declare our faith in restoration. All this needs to be followed up with the usual actions and problem-solving. But it is in those moments when citizens engage one another, in communion with and in the witness of others, that something collective shifts. Keeping this focus is especially critical when individuals and institutions meet across boundaries. The key is to structure a way of crossing boundaries so that people become connected to those they are not used to being in the room with. Every gathering, in its composition and in its structure, has to be an example of the future we want to create. If this is achieved in this gathering, then that future has occurred today, and there is nothing to wait for pretty zen we work hard on getting the questions right this begins by realizing that the questions themselves are important more important than the answers the primary questions for community transformation are how do we choose to be together and what do we want to create together these are different from the primary questions for individual transformation which are how do i choose to be in whatever setting i find myself in and What am I called to do in this world? We choose depth over speed and relatedness over scale. The question, what do we want to create together, is deceptively complicated. It implies a long journey crossing social, class, and institutional boundaries. Depth takes time and the willingness to engage. Belonging requires the courage to set aside our usual notions of action and of measuring success by the numbers touched. It also means that while we keep our own point of view, we leave our self-interest at the door and show up to learn rather than to advocate. These are the conditions whereby we find new places where we belong. Choosing possibility over problem solving. Creating a future is different from defining a future. If our goal is to build social capital, And to change the way that citizens are engaged with each other, then we have to shift our thinking about the roles that traditional strategy and problem-solving take. We talked earlier about valuing gifts and possibility over needs and problems. Now we can be more detailed about what this looks like. Our typical way of creating a future is by specifying the vision and the goals and then defining a blueprint to achieve them. This is called a destination strategy for solving problems. Here are the strategic elements of traditional problem solving. Identify a need. Find a problem, need, or deficiency that we want to fix or improve. Study and analyze the need. Do research, assemble facts, survey people, and organize survey results and data to make a compelling case for change. Search for solutions. Brainstorm alternatives. Benchmark where others have solved this deficiency. Bring in experts, consultants, academics, former leaders, and former public officials to provide good approaches. Establish goals. Set realistic and achievable goals based on the vision. Define outcomes and narrow the effort toward results that can be achieved. The quicker and lower the cost, the better. Search for the low-hanging fruit, maybe initiate a pilot project to prove the viability of the strategy. Laminate the vision, mission, and goals to demonstrate the permanence of this intention. Bring others on board, sell to key leaders, meet with citizens to define the effort and name the playing field. Enlist organizations and individuals to create an alliance for change. Publicize the burning platform and stress the urgency and the need for quick results. Give wide distribution to the laminate. Implement. Launch the program and drive it forward. Stay on message and measure at frequent intervals. Hold people accountable for results, fulfilling promises, and showing outcomes. Declare to others how accountable we are. Loop back. When the world intervenes and creates a bump in the road, begin the problem-solving anew, identifying what went wrong and who was responsible, and initiating a clear oversight process so that this will not happen again. The essence of these classic problem-solving steps is the belief in a blueprint. We are all problem-solvers, action-oriented and results-minded. It is illegal in this culture to leave a meeting without a to-do list, we want measurable outcomes, and we want them now. And this all has such face validity that it seems foolish to argue in any way against it. Also, this way of thinking does indeed work for many things, especially for the material world. It does not work well with human systems or when the desire is to create something out of nothing. We still believe that in building a community, we are in effect building and operating a clock. Once again, Problem-solving can make things better, but it cannot change the nature of things. This insight is at the center of all the thinking about complex adaptive systems, emergent design, and the organic and self-regulating nature of the universe. The limitations of a clockwork strategy for the future can be seen in one of the most popular forms of community problem-solving, creating a vision. Most communities have at some point described a vision for themselves. These visions are developed as a way of defining the destination. The new millennium was a great occasion for this. Now the horizon has shifted to 2030. These types of visions have value in that they bring many people together for the sake of development, and they give form to the optimism we hold for ourselves. But they are limited in their power to transform, because they assume that a defined destination can be reached in a linear path from where we are today. Most visions are based on the belief that we know a lot about what constitutes an ideal or healthy community, which is true. There are many wonderful books that describe what a great community looks like. Jane Jacobs crystallized our thinking about the power of street life. Robert Putnam raised our consciousness about the centrality of social capital. John McKnight's work has built wide support for asset-based community development. The challenge for community building is this. While visions, plans, and committed top leadership are important, even essential, no clear vision, nor detailed plan, nor committed group leaders have the power to bring this image of the future into existence Without the continued engagement and involvement of citizens. In most instances, citizens' engagement ends when the plan is in place. The implementation is put in the hands of the professionals. In concept, the master plan provides some parameters for development and the use of space, but in real life it usually is a call to let the arguing begin. For all its utility, It rarely builds interdependence or strengthens the social fabric of a place. What brings a fresh future into being is citizens who are willing to self-organize. An alternative future needs the investment of citizens, leaders not in top positions, who are willing to pay the economic and emotional price that creating something really new requires. Therefore, the challenge for every community is not so much to have a vision of what it wants to become, or a plan, or specific timetables. The real challenge is to discover and create the means for engaging citizens that brings a new possibility into being. To state it more precisely, what gives power to communal possibility is the imagination and the authorship of citizens led through a process of engagement. This is an organic and relational process. This is what creates a structure of belonging. This is more critical than the vision and the plan. Example, Covington. In Covington, Kentucky, several city institutions together chose to use this kind of community building as a way of developing a strategic plan for its civil servants and citizens. City manager Jay Fawcett, the head of the Center for Great Neighborhoods, Tom DiBello, And the head of the local business association, Gina Brayfogle, asked for help with a series of citizen gatherings to create the agenda for the city following the protocol suggested in this book. Under the leadership of Jeff Steck, a very talented local community builder, we invited the citizens of Covington to four public gatherings. Not to advise the leaders, but to define the priorities of the plan and to commit to making the strategic plan work. 500 people in a town of 44,000 showed up to do just this. Each session had people meeting in small groups, working with people they did not know but with whom they shared a common interest. They answered open-ended questions, were asked to choose among priorities, and in the final session, were asked for their commitment to bring this planning process into reality. At the end of the process, the city had its strategic plan. And more important, it had the commitment of a significant group of citizens signed up to make the plan work. Perhaps most important, they strengthened the fabric of their community in the process. What creates an alternative future is acting on the belief that context, relatedness, and language are the point and that traditional problem-solving needs to be subordinated and postponed until context, relatedness, and language have shifted. In this thinking, problem-solving becomes a means, not an end in itself. We cannot problem-solve our way into fundamental change or transformation or community. To state it one more way, this is not an argument against problem-solving. It is an assertion that the primary work is to shift the context and language and thinking about possibility within which problem-solving takes place. This shift requires us to change our idea of what constitutes action so that what was once seen as a means to an end now is itself valued as action. Another key insight from Jim Keen, who has spent his life in the public arena, is that perhaps the purpose of problems is to give us an excuse to come together. Expanding our idea of action. Of course, Just coming together has to provide some movement toward the future. Every time we meet, we want to feel that we have moved the action forward. Community has a purpose beyond relationship. It has to create livelihood, raise a child, care for our health, embrace the vulnerable. To have these communal effects, we have to reconstruct our definition of action. The question then is, what qualifies as action Traditionally, in order to be satisfied that we have spent our time well when we are together, we want a strategy, a list of next steps and milestones, and then a combination of brick and mortar and the knowledge of who will be responsible for what. Any change in the world will, in fact, need this kind of action. To say, however, that this is all that counts as action is too narrow. If we are to value building social fabric and belonging as much as budgets, timetables, and bricks and mortar, we need to consider action in a broader way. For example, would a meeting be worthwhile if we simply strengthened our relationship? Would a meeting be worthwhile if we learned something of value? Suppose in a meeting we simply stated our requests of each other and what we are willing to offer each other. Would that justify our time together? Or, in a gathering, what if we only discussed the gifts we wanted to bring to bear on the concern that brought us together? Would that be an outcome of value? Suppose we spent the time agreeing on what matters to us. Saying yes to these questions opens and broadens the spectrum of what constitutes action, and this is the point. Relatedness, learning, requests, intentions, offers of gifts— Agreements on what matters are outcomes as valuable as agreements and next steps. It is not that we are gathering just for the sake of gathering, or gathering to get to know each other. We come together for an exchange of value and to experience how relatedness, gifts, learning, and generosity are valuable to community. When we name these as outcomes, we're able to experience completion for the investment we made without having to leave with a list for the future. Without these elements of connection, the traditional tasks lose their urgency and have to be constantly incentivized to be sustained. With this expanded notion of action, we can bring visioning, problem-solving, and clearly defined outcomes into the room. And in fact, we need them to sustain us. People will meet to learn and connect for only so long, and then they need a task. In addition to finding each other, and having new conversations with people we are not used to talking to, at least in this way, it also helps to produce a physical thing. Clean something up, make a meal, start a community garden, walk some dogs, ask a neighbor if they are lonely. The practical becomes an excuse to be together, which is needed to sustain belonging over time.